A Washington Redskins patch in a Sauce Gardener card has card manufacturing hit rock bottom. We're talking quality control and more today on Cards on the Table. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Cards on the Table, our fast-paced card show where we talk about a variety of topics in the world of sports cards. My name is Tyler Nethercott, better known as Teapot. Happy to be sitting again in the captain's chair while Jeff is away sailing the seven seas. And this week, I've got Ben back. You're always good for a few punchy one-liners. Welcome back, Ben. It's all I provide. It's all you provide. And Doug, I'm going to do something that has never been done from this seat before. All right. I'm going to say, go Cats. I love it. Go Kentucky. Screw the Gators. I'm happy you're here and not Jeff. Yeah, I'm very happy not to start the show off by getting berated, so it's great to be here. I know we don't want to share the same mind, but I'll give you some props once in a while. Uh, Let's go ahead and get into our first topic today, and it's a great one. It's kind of a sad one at the same time, and that is quality control. Most recently, there was an issue that surfaced with Bowman Draft, the most recent Bowman Draft product, where 20 different players across four different parallels, ended up printing the same serial number on the cards over and over and over again. So instead of having 1 to 399 out of 399, you had a certain player, and let's say it was 45 out of 399, 399 times, or at least that's the presumption. But there's multiple instances of the same serial number appearing for certain parallels. Tops, of course, issued an apology for this. There was another issue, Ryan from Card Collector 2, he pulled a Washington Redskins, or at least shared it on his Instagram page, of a, of a Spectra card, Panini, not Tops this time, with a Washington Redskins, not Commanders, and they haven't been the Redskins for a few years now, a patch from the Redskins in a Sauce Gardner card. And you might know that Sauce Gardner plays, of course, for the New York Jets. So another big snafu. So the question here, guys, is all around quality control. What are your thoughts on quality control and what should these companies be doing to make it up to the users? There was some suspicion that the buyback program for the MVPs maybe was a way of making it up this year for the, you know, certain snafus by tops. Ben, give me your take on all of this. Well, to be honest, Teapot, I think quality control overall is the biggest issue facing the hobby. I know a lot of people talk about anything from negative content to fraud and crime, but I think when it comes to quality control and the flow chart of how the hobby works, that's the first step. And if the first step is negative, then that's just going to feed into everything else. And you sort of brought it up a little bit, but I don't think the companies are doing nearly enough when it comes to these things. And that's not to say that quality control is easy. It's not, it's not going to be. Quality control has been kind of an issue all the way back to the beginning of when we started printing cards. They've been all kinds of, there have been all kinds of different issues Of course, it changes from era to era, but the problem that I have is that when you buy a card and there's a quality control issue, there's really no solution for it, right? You walk into a Target, you buy your microwave, and it stinks. You take it back, and they get you a new one. They they give you a new one, or you get refunded, but unfortunately, a lot of the time in the hobby, when you get something like that, you get your Washington Redskins patch and your Sauce Gardner card, you're probably going to be holding the bag. And I think that's what, in particular, makes quality control feel so bad. You were impacted by it, and there's no great solution. I know places like Panini try to do Panini points, but that that process is so convoluted, we really don't know how it works. And in the end, 
if it felt better, if, if collectors felt better about the solution afterward, if they felt like, hey, I got this card, it's terribly off-center, it's terribly miscut, you know, it's mislabeled in some way, they will make me whole at some point, it wouldn't feel so bad. Yeah, I mean, overall, there's a lot of different quality control issues, right? We, we talk about the patch, there's sticker autos of the wrong players, there's the Kendrick No-None missing yeah. rookie card, missing mm -hmm. name Shea, missing his rookie card logo on his rookie cards, and then there's just the print quality issues, the defects, the roller lines, those things. Are any of those things worse than the others, and what's your overall take on this, Doug? I would say that just overall condition of the card is worse. So if it comes out with print lines all over it, crimped corners, whatever the case may be, yeah. in, in that regard, that's worse. Because there is still you know, a niche community that, that appreciates errors. We look back at cards like the Billy Ripken card, Dale Murphy, Frank Thomas. Those are coveted error cards. Yeah. And there's still people that like error cards now. There's probably somebody who wants that card that Ryan, Card Collector 2, pulled. There's probably someone who wants a Brazilian Ronaldo with a Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> sticker auto on there. Uh, those things exist now, and there's probably a market for that. But there's not a market for a card that just comes out of a pack all beat up. Yeah. But to Ben's point, the real issue then is how can we make that process better? How can we kind of hold companies accountable for these kinds of mistakes or just overall bad quality? And I really don't know the answer to that. I think the more robust plan you put in place to kind of help make collectors whole, the more people are going to look to take advantage of that. If it's too good, people are going to mess up their own cards. They're going to destroy their own cards. They're going to switch out their own patches to try to take advantage of whatever this possible uh, you know, policy might be. So there's got to be a really fine balance there, and I think that's a really tricky thing to navigate. But overall, uh, you know, my, I'm in agreement with Ben that quality control is a big issue. You've got so many sets now. You're printing so many cards. It's almost impossible to be really strict on quality control or it's going to slow everything down tremendously. And we're already very slow. We're really far behind on the product release calendar as it is. Uh, so, you know, that's not going to get any better if you try to slow it down and, and do quality control on all these different cards and sets. So, you know, maybe less is more. Maybe we need to print less. It could be. Less is more could be the case in this scenario. And I, you know, Personally, the one thing I'd still like to see, and we've talked about this in the past, is some transparency into that process. They of don't course. have to show us all the secret sauce gardener uh, in this process, but understanding how this happens mm -hmm. would actually probably work in their favor just to say, look, we get it. You know, there's a lot of different problems, but I want to be fair. I want to be fair to these companies and say, we're not saying this is easy, but we are saying that if there's mistakes, we need to make it right, find a way to make it right to the users. Good idea is always, if you have the ability, record yeah. when you're opening packs too just in case you get something super wacky or your guaranteed hits don't show up in the packs that type of thing is never a bad idea and the one, the one thing that i do want to point out too is it really is difficult and sort of a small defense of the manufacturers it is difficult to see how much worse quote unquote worse quality control has become because they weren't tweeting about it with the 19, 1909 set Right. No. You know, and the, we weren't talking about 1933 Gaudi on Facebook or anything. So in general, all of that stuff is getting elevated. Yep. All right. Good points. Good points. Uh, let's go to our second topic. Last week, I did another data dive, you know, as I do every Saturday. And this time what I was doing was trying to break down rookie speculation and, and realistic expectations. And really, I covered two different things. The first was have realistic expectations about the long-term prospects of rookie cards if you're buying into them early. And the second thing that I talked about was I don't like it when people purely bash on speculation like it's a bad thing. This sure. is part of the hobby that as long as I've been collecting and alive since the 90s, there's been rookie speculation. There always is, and there's always going to be hype around prices of players that are modern 
and new, that's never going to go away. The market's never gonna wise up and stop paying those premiums. So I was trying to break that down and show. And so what I really went through was the last four years, in 2018, 19, 2021 specifically, rookie cards from basketball and football to see what's happened to the most hyped, let's say the top six players from each of those draft classes to their prices since then. And really the only two guys that have gone up notably are Luca and Josh Allen. And that's it. Everybody else is down. Now, people in the comments were saying, what about Jalen Brunson? What about Shea? What about other people? They weren't the top hyped guys. Sure. And so you yeah. always have those scenarios where guys break out like a Kawhi Leonard or somebody, Jimmy Butler, and their prices will go up over time. So I just want kind of reactions from both of you. And I'm going to start with you, Doug. Uh, do you like, I know you, you know, dabble with the rookie speculation. What's your approach and do you have any reactions to that kind of negativity around speculation? Well, it's changed a lot. Speculation today is not what it was a couple of years ago. No. And again, I just touched on it, but it goes to the new product calendar that we're on right now. Previously, a couple of years ago, you could get Optic or Prism before the basketball season started or early in the season of football or basketball. And at that point, you could truly speculate because no one's played yet. You could, you know, pick your diamonds in the rough, your sleepers, yep. and, and invest in those, hopefully before the prices exploded. But now we're so late in the process. I mean, it's almost the all-star break in the NBA, and we're just now getting 2022 hoops. It's just, you know, first yeah. cards for yeah. a guy like Paulo Bencaro. Yeah. And we already have our sleepers. You know, Jalen Smith, we know who he is now. That's, that's a guy who probably would have gone cheap yeah. before the season started. Now he's not going to go cheap when the products drop. So that's a big factor right now is the fact that we can't truly prospect the same way we used to. Now if you're getting into these hyped rookies, the prices are already fixed because we know what they're doing on the court. Now you're basically hoping this guy turns into a top 50 player or yeah. something along those lines in order just to maintain that. So it's not what it used to be, and I shy away from that more and more, honestly. Yeah. You know, there is still value in going, you know, if you're you know, ripping packs or joining breaks and you're going from that raw to graded uh, uh, section where you can kind of gain value there. But in general, you know, it's just not for me any, like it used to be anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point on the product release calendar. I mean, you're talking yeah. about hoops used to come out first product of the year, what, September or something. Mm -hmm. Prism would be out by now. That used to come out, I think, December-ish, if I'm not mistaken. As early as maybe, October maybe, in maybe, some years past. Maybe even October back in like 18, 19. And now <laughs> everything's out later. So, Ben, what's your take on that? I just think this, again, proves how small of a percentage of the hobby actually goes up in value. Yeah. When we're talking about these top flight players, you mentioned it, Doug. Josh Allen, for what his prices are at right now, he needs to be like a top five quarterback of all time. So when you're actually speculating a little bit, when you're prospecting, take that into consideration. You need to think, what is the actual ceiling on this player? Teapot, you and I have talked about this. When I look at early play, you know, players in their second or third year even, or, or rookies, I look at the exact roster they're on. What is the best case scenario for them, right? Can they be the top player on that team. As with most things in my life, I take my advice from Star Wars and I look at the rule of two, right? Can you even be like the top two play, one of the top two players on your team? Everybody a few years ago, ago was buying like Cam Johnson for, for Phoenix. Yeah. What's, what's the best case scenario for Cam Johnson? And that's the case for so many of these players. And if you can't be the absolute megastar on a championship level team, are you worth buying for investment purposes? Are you worth buying long-term? I think that there can still be tons of, tons of short-term flips for a lot of these guys, but long-term, 
it's going to be two or three guys over the course of 10 years yep. that, that go up in value. So please be careful with stuff like that. And unless they're a megastar like Luca, it's just not going to happen. We have to be honest about these things. Yes. The thing I worry about with the speculation in the last couple of years, especially, if you look at the total number of card variations in existence, go to Trading Card Database, it's like much like our money supply, a third of the total cards in existence were printed in like the last two and a half years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The number of rookie cards, Zion has like 2019 different rookie cards, Yep. ironically, to his, his rookie year. And you trace that back to somebody like Sean Kemp, who has like three, right? Mm -hmm. It makes it really hard to know what to focus on. People are paying a lot of money for wax. Then they potentially open it and get a Redskins patch on a Sauce Gardner card. And then those cards don't you know, equal out to the value of the box. And then over time, if those prices tank too, yep. I worry about those people just leaving the hobby completely and leaving with a bad taste in their mouth. So sure. we've talked about it before. I'm really hoping that Fanatics will find a way to balance this out, transparency with print runs and pack odds, a lot of other things and kind of control and have clearer brand identity and then get the products out on time with good quality. This is our perfect utopian world that we're all dreaming of and I, I really hope that we can get there. So excellent points. Thank you both. Let's run quickly to an ad. We have the brand new Market Movers, Market Movers X Mobile. Check this out. All right, that app is absolutely awesome, if I do say so myself. My product team did an excellent job designing that, building it. It's got so many more of the features that you're used to on the web. And if you go to marketmoversapp.com, use promo code MOBILE, M-O-B-I-L-E, for 25% off your first payment. I really hope that you will check it out. Now let's get into the third topic here. And this is one that comes up time and time again. A lot of questions always around grading, but it's how do you know which grading company to use? You know, what are you looking at? Obviously, you've got PSA, you've got uh, CSG and, you know, kind of carving a little bit of a niche out with uh, comics and TCG with Marvel cards now. You've got SGC, which is really a fan favorite for vintage. And then you've obviously got Beckett, which is like part of the old guard and, you know, big on patch cards. And then you got the new guys, Rare Edition, tag grading, doing some really innovative things that people want to get behind. So I'm going to start with you again, Doug. Tell me about your philosophy on grading and who you like to go to. Yeah, I think you did a pretty good job of giving really quick reasons why you would go a certain direction. You know, PSA typically for the value. Um, SGC typically does better in vintage and they're more recognized in vintage. Whereas CSG, um, you know, they're getting into more of the TCG stuff. Um, TAG is going to have its place soon because of its AI. Um, but let me make an argument, I guess, for BGS because they, they're sort of the odd man out here. Uh, granted, people know them for thicker cards, patch autos, things of that nature, and, and they're good at that. But there's a little bit more to it than that for BGS. One of the things to consider is, is, is of course, subgrades. Yep. If you've got a card and you're looking at it and the card is mostly perfect with one noticeable flaw that's 
probably going to get a 9 anywhere else that might have the opportunity to get a 9.5 in BGS. And you might prefer that 9.5 to a 9, or the value might be better in a 9.5 compared to a 9 anywhere else. So that's always a reason to kind of look at them. Um, or on the other end of that spectrum, what if you have a card that looks absolutely perfect? Our guy Alex recently submitted a Pokemon card to BGS because he thought it could black label, and it did. And it did. So, you know, having that prestigious black label is kind of a big deal. So, you know, he took that risk, yep. that, went that route, and it paid off. I've got a friend also, this is a, you know, another point that I'm not sure how many people really look at, and it may not apply to a ton of people, but I've got a friend named Corbin who recently pulled the Mbappe one of one out of 2022 yeah. Prism, out of a, re, you know, a blaster that he got at Walmart. Uh, he decided to go BGS for grading because PSA was going to cost $1,000 to grade it. BGS was going to cost $400 grading, saving several hundred dollars yeah. grading with BGS. And they also don't upcharge for declared value if you were to exceed any sort of declared value limit. So it, there's financial reasons if you're you know, in that, playing yeah. in that realm yeah. of card. Yeah. But there's, there's more reasons than you would think to include BGS in the conversation. And, and in a one-of-one one where the grade matters less, to some people it still matters. Yeah. Frankly, for me, it really shouldn't. It's about the one-of-one one card. Right. It's more about the authentication. Yeah. So you would hope that the multiplier in that case wouldn't be that significant on a PSA card. Ben, what's your approach to grading? Who do you like? Well, I think Doug made a lot of really good points. And some of the things that I like to point out too is sometimes cards may not even be graded by those companies. I think it's BGS is the only one that does booklets, although I think we can objectively say not super well. But there's, I have like some very old school vintage, like early 1900s Syracuse stuff that I've talked about on the channel before. I can't even get that graded by PSA. They won't. So I have to go to SGC. I would prefer SGC anyway because it is, in my opinion, the best place for vintage, but I don't even have another option. <clears throat> and there's even other things now where you see CGC has started grading Marvel cards. Yep. Some people will like the fact that they can get their comics graded in a very similar slab to their actual cards. Doug, you like to match those things yep. up a little bit. That continuity there can can matter quite a bit for a lot of people. And then in general, the role that I have is do whatever the heck you want. Like don't, don't listen to, to anybody else. If, if you like one slab over another, yep. if you're willing to pay any amount for, for the actual slab itself, do whatever the heck you want. Don't listen to anybody else. It's going on your shelf. It's in your collection. If we're uh, inserting other variables like resale value into it, maybe do some research. Yep. But if it's, if it's on your shelf, don't listen to anybody else. Do whatever you want. Yep. Makes sense. I mean, look, I this is no disrespect to PSA. I like PSA. How dare you? But I do think that the premium on PSA has gotten kind of out of control, in sure. my opinion. These these are other rep, very reputable companies. Uh, in many cases, maybe stricter on grading. Uh, I would say go to the company that you've had a great experience with, that you have had good uh, customer service from. But it is amazing how there's so many different redeeming qualities to each of them. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the CSG slab itself being really nice, mm -hmm. and they obviously improved the label. So you can find something at each of them, and I frankly just really love what Tag's trying to do with the automated stuff. I think that needs to be the future. All right, last question. Question, uh, this also was a mailbag, and by the way, if you have questions for us, please make sure to leave them down in the comments. We love uh, looking through those and, and answering your questions. Do you prefer buying cards at a card show or online. There's pros and cons to both of these. Ben, I'm going to go to you first on this one. Well, if the question remains how it was cast to us, you know, where do you prefer buying cards? 100% at card shows. It's a great experience. You get to chat with people. You get to chat with dealers. You get to see a whole bunch of stuff in hand. If it's actually trying to buy stuff for the best price, I don't go to card shows at all. I, the, the reality is that 
better prices are probably going to be found online, much better selection online. But I'm actually willing to pay a premium for what I consider to be a service. A lot of people go to shows and say, well, they're asking over, over comps, right? Yep. I'm willing to pay $52 for a $45 card because I'm not having to wait for the shipping. I get to hold it in my hand. I get a pos hopefully a positive interaction with the dealer there. I don't have to worry about anything else. I, I don't have to worry about shipping. Take it right home. I actually put a price on that type of stuff. A premium. And exactly. I put a premium on that. And so a whole bunch of different things go into that. Best experience, 100% card shows. Best value, best selection. It has to be online, right? It has to be. I mean... You haven't had the dealer where they just respect the comps right away when you show them and they love being, <laughs> having comps put in their face? <laughs> Not Sounds typically. like you need to bring Reeves with you, man. He's, he's the real negotiator. He'll get you some deals. Doug, what about you? Similar answer, but it's not necessarily, you know, card shows to me aren't really about buying cards. You know, I go there mainly working, but it's all about the conversations, conversations that you're having, meeting the different dealers. Uh, cards look so much better in person than they do yeah. some sort of online scan or some poorly mm -hmm. lit out of focus picture. Uh, so, you know, I appreciate being able to see the cards, put my hands on the cards and, and have those conversations. As far as buying goes, one of the things that you have to consider, you hear people, like you know, Ben mentioned it, but you hear people complain about card shows being expensive, dealers being overpriced. Well, you know, there's, there's factors that go into that, right? I mean, they're a business. They have yeah. to turn a profit and they have to turn over inventory. So whatever, you know, they may have bought a card at X price and they can only let it go at a certain threshold because they're not in the business to lose money. Yeah. You also have to consider the cost it takes to travel to card shows and set up your table and buy a table and things of that it's nature. It's not cheap. Right, so there's, there's costs involved in that. But it's not that much different typically than going somewhere where you're going to have to pay fees or pay tax, you know, things of yeah. that nature. So you've got the ability to deal in cash and avoid fees. That's, that's pleasant. But I will say that card shows are far easier to negotiate. And the reason mm -hmm. why is dealers are there to sell cards. Yeah. They're not there to, to yep. show you what they've got and then hold on to it. They do want to move inventory. So negotiation does exist there. And also, you've got less competition at a card yep. show. You go online somewhere to a you know, major marketplace, you might be dealing with a thousand, two thousand, thousands of other people looking at that same card, not the case at a card show. It might just be a one-on-one -on -one interaction yep. and, and you can make a deal right then and there. Uh, dollar bins, I'll also say, can be another really great thing. A lot of fun. That you yep. can sort through dollar bins. Yep. And the final thing I'll say on that is when you go to card shows, it's also pretty hard to find something specific. It's not like you can just go and search for a certain player or card like you can yep. online. Yeah. And that's a, that's a downside a little it bit. It is a downside. There's, uh, there's two different approaches that people might take at a show. One is just go and explore. I want to see everything that's there. I want to experience the community, get to know dealers, other people, and that is really, really, really fun. And the other is to have a plan, and that's actually the Data Dive episode that I'm doing is how specifically you can use market movers along with your strategy before you go to a show. So hopefully you'll check that out this Saturday. That is all the time that we have this week. I've really enjoyed sitting here. Maybe we'll have to do this more often. Yeah, who needs to Let Jeff take a break. And uh, until next time, make sure again to leave us your comments down below. Uh, thanks so much for watching and tune in next week for another Cards on the Table.